All right. It's so good to be back at Grand Peak Academy. Good to see you. Uh, this is your first time with us. My name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here. Joy to have you in our house. New Life East is one of eight congregations of New Life Church meeting across the Colorado Springs area. We follow uh, Jesus together by worshiping him and by connecting with one another and by serving one another in the city around us. Uh, if this is your first time, we'd love to see you in Connect Central after the service. We would love to meet you. If you're not connected around here, you can talk to Pastor Colin or Pastor Rory, and they'll help get you connected around here. But we, uh, we're happy to have you in our midst. One quick announcement that I need to pass your way. By the way, we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount this morning. So I'll be in the book of Matthew chapter 6. But one quick announcement to pass along uh, to you uh, this morning. Next Sunday... Uh, we have a special guest uh, preaching for us, uh, Pastor Pete Gregg, the leader of the uh, 24-7, global 24-7 prayer movement, going to be in the house next week. How many of you have ever heard Pete Gregg preach? The dude can just bring it. And so uh, New Life Church is actually really privileged. Uh, we've been part, kind of associated with the 24-7 prayer movement for a lot of years. Uh, our World Prayer Center is actually sort of like the Western U.S. hub of 24-7 prayer. And uh, so Pete is just, uh, we go back a lot of years with him, and uh, he's a deep well. I think he's a prophetic voice for the church in our age, so you will not want to miss it. He's going to be talking about the Lord's Prayer next week, and so right in his wheelhouse talking about prayer, it's going to be just great. Okay, this is, I don't know if you know this, uh, but we have just, the church globally has just entered the season known as Lent. And uh, if you don't know what Lent is, Lent is just an old word that means spring, and in the very ancient church, this goes back a lot of years, like to the very first centuries of the church, uh, as the church was preparing for Easter, it would usually take the 40 days or so leading up to Easter, and it would make that a period where folks, as folks were coming into the church and getting ready to be baptized on Easter Sunday, they would use the season of Lent really to instruct them in the basics of the faith, sort of Christianity 101. And as time went on, uh, the church basically started realizing that, like, actually, this is a good thing for all of us to do. You know, like, there are periodic times that you go through in your life where you just have to sort of get back to 101. You have to get back to the basics. You have to clear the junk out of your life and just get back to simplicity. Any of you in the house, do you do any spring cleaning? Do we have any spring cleaning people in the house? Did this go away? Does that, I thought that was a thing. But it is so joyful, you know. You just like throw that away. I don't need that anymore. That's a bunch of crap. What are you doing? You're clearing space out so that new things can happen and better things can happen. That's really what Lent is. And one of the things, or there's a handful of things that you kind of focus on during Lent. Uh, prayer, fasting, and then what you do with your possessions. And it's the church's way, again, of calling you back to the basics of your faith, which is cool. Because this being the first Sunday of Lent, this is kind of what we're talking about here in this first section of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus addresses prayer and fasting and what we do with our possessions. And he helps us get clearer, clearer and better motives for what we're doing. So we're in Matthew chapter 6. If you're there, holler at me by saying, I'm there. And so, Lord, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your presence in our midst. We thank you for making us a church family together. We thank you that the Spirit is forming a body that is learning how to be faithful to you. We thank you for these words that have been given to us. We pray that they would be life to us and health to our whole bodies. They're by themselves, they're nothing. They're words printed on a page, just like communion elements. The bread and the cup are just nothing by themselves. 
But if you would take these words and bless them and break them and give them to us, they could become more. And we need them to become more. We're wandering into this place this morning, not out of a sense of religious obligation, but there's something in our hearts that told us we needed to be here. We need God. And so we pray, God, that you would show yourself to us this morning. We pray that you would pour your spirit out on us this morning. We pray that you would feed us by your word this morning. We pray that you would center us in the kingdom of God again this morning. May the rush of the spirit be upon us. And may we find ourselves stepping into the life of God. Granted, we're praying. We say, may the words this morning of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Jesus says, the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 6, be careful. Not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by other people. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then... Your father who sees what is done in secret will, what does the text say? Reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But you, when you pray, you go into your room and you close the door and you pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will, what does the text say? reward in it. And when you fast, jumping down to verse 16, we're going to leave it to Pete to preach the Lord's Prayer next week. When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show other people that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But you, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to other people that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in the unseen will, what does the text say? Reward you, brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Thanks be to God. So here's Jesus talking about our piety, the practice of our faith. And he says, when you're in, uh, when you're taking care of people that are vulnerable, so when you're out in public and you're taking care of the poor, you know at that point that you're doing something that the church and that society smile upon. And there's going to be this like moment that rises up in your heart where you go, I'm doing something that everybody thinks should be done. And therefore, you're going to be tempted to like preen and posture and show everybody that you're doing this amazing thing. And Jesus says, when that impulse rises up in you to show off about the righteous thing that you're doing, he says, resist that impulse. Then he says, there are going to be times that you're praying. And as you're praying before your father in heaven, maybe you're doing it in public with other people. And there's going to be this thing that rises up in you. And you're going to start thinking, I wonder how people are looking at me as I'm praying. Like, can they tell I'm a very spiritual person by what I'm doing? And Jesus says, as soon as that thing rises up in you, resist that impulse. And it might be, Jesus says, that you decide to undertake a fast. And so you're humbling yourself before the Lord and you're fasting and you're praying. And as you're doing it, you're really thinking that it's a very heroic effort for you. You know, like you've been fasting for three hours you're patting yourself on the back and you just, there's this thing in you that wants other people to know that you're doing this very spiritual thing. And Jesus says, when that happens, 
you got to resist that. Now, why would Jesus say that? Here are these righteous things that we're doing. Why is Jesus saying that we need to do them in secret or cover over them in some way? And also, isn't this somewhat in contradiction to what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount? So here's Matthew 5 and verse 14. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your, you might be able to finish it. Yeah, your good deeds, your good works and glorify your father in heaven. So isn't it for the people's benefit that they see these things? And isn't this kind of a contradiction here, Jesus? You know, like, did you forget what you said to us earlier, you know, like maybe you ought to do a better job writing up your notes before you preach so that you don't, what's going on here? I want to say it to you this way. This is what I think that Jesus is commending to us. I think that Jesus expects us to be seen. And the scripture says this, that those who do righteous deeds, even if you try to hide them, they can't be hidden. Jesus expects us to be seen, but he also expects us not to make a point of being seen. He is warning us here against the sin of vanity. Everybody say Vanity. Vanity is that thing in us that postures and preens before others because we want everybody to think that we're amazing. We want a good pat on the back. And Jesus says that that thing is really destructive. Don't do that. When you feel that impulse towards vanity showing off in your righteousness, Jesus says, resist that impulse. Why would he say that? I want to give you three things this morning. Number one, I think that the big thing about vanity is that vanity misses the point of what we are doing. Vanity misses the point of what we're doing. Almost all of the ancient philosophers, even down to the present day, will say that virtue or righteousness is not just a matter of doing the right thing, but virtue, righteousness, is a matter of doing the right thing for the right reason. And that it's not just about accomplishing this thing, but if we accomplish this thing, but we do it for the wrong reason, somehow there's a kind of pollution that has gone into the world because of that. T.S. Eliot, the great poet of the 20th century, said that the last temptation is the greatest treason, that is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. To do the right thing for the wrong reason. And when you think about Jesus' words here through that lens, it helps clarify some of what Jesus is saying. When we're giving, for instance, to the poor, what is the point of giving to the poor? This is not a trick question. Yeah, you're trying to help these people. They are vulnerable, they're exposed, their lives have fallen apart. So you're trying to do something for them to lift them up. How sinister is it to do things to lift them up? But really, who are you actually trying to lift up in that process? Yourself. So now you have done this benevolent thing, but you have done it selfishly. To do the right thing for the wrong reason is the ultimate treason. Or think about prayer. What is the point of prayer? The point of prayer is that we would be (laughs) decentered. The point of prayer is that we lose ourselves in the presence of God. The point of prayer is that we're molded into the image of the one to whom we pray. The point of prayer is that we realize that there's one sitting on the center of the throne and the angels and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, everything surrounds this one. And instead, somehow in prayer, as we're showing off before other people, who have we made the center of prayer all of a sudden? We've made ourselves the center We've prayed supposedly to lift up God and lose ourselves in God. Instead, we've put ourselves at the center. Or when we're fasting, what is the point of fasting? 
The point of fasting is self-denial. The point of fasting, again, is that we'd move ourselves to the fringes. The point of fasting is that we would get off the platform of our lives and realize somebody else is in charge. And somehow, in telling other people about this fasting that we've done, what have we done? We've put ourselves right back in the center. Friends, it's one of the greatest temptations of the spiritual life. That we want other people to think that we're very spiritual people. And it starts very early. I'm born and raised in church. And I can remember from the very earliest days of my experience in church, you know, I'd be like in a worship service like we had this morning. And the presence of God would be there. The spirit would fall. And I would feel myself moved in some way. You know, and I might fall down on my knees. And I'm moved in my heart. And so tears are forming on my eyes. And I'm like literally lost in the presence of God. And then all of a sudden, right there in the middle of that, I'm on my knees, tears streaming down my face. I would think, ooh, I'm doing the thing that everybody approves of here. And I wonder if they see me. I wonder if they see that among all of the youths of our church, I really am one of the very spiritual youths. Of, and all of a sudden you're just in this crazy mind game watching yourself through the eyes of other people and it just it would happen over and over and over again. The beauty of that moment is lost because somehow in the midst of that moment, I've climbed up on a platform and now I'm performing this thing in front of all of these people. Have you ever been there? It cuts us off from the flow of life. And unfortunately, I mean, this has always been with humanity, but unfortunately in the time that we live in, it's easier than ever and it's more tempting than ever. And you know why that is? Because we all have one of these and there are powerful people with lots of money out there who have engineered this device so that you will not have the experience of being lost in righteousness. You'll have the experience of publishing your righteousness in front of everybody. And you've been there just like I have. You've blocked off some time for you to be in the presence of God. And you got in there and you opened the scriptures and you were there for a whole four minutes. And you began to read the text of Scripture and all of a sudden something really ministered, like genuinely ministered to you. You know what I mean? The Spirit is like speaking this Scripture to you and something is happening. And what's your first thought? I need to take a picture of this and I need to publish for everybody this thing that I've done. And so now you're on this stupid, stupid, stupid device. You're on this thing and you're taking a picture of the Bible verse and you're writing down how amazing the experience is. And you're kind of humble bragging in it. Oh my gosh, it's just such a privilege to be in the presence of God. And I can't believe that, you know, there's so many persecuted people out there that don't have access to a Bible, but we have one. And you're just, you're playing, you're, you're starring in your own movie. And I just think that God is like, all right, whenever you're done, do you want to come back? Because I have more for you. But instead, we're out there trying to get everybody to approve of us. Guys, it misses the point. Have you ever just lost yourself in secret righteousness? It's one of the most joyful things that can ever happen to you, that you have an experience and you don't tell anybody about it. Back in 2015, when I was serving as a pastor in Denver, I felt this uh, call from the Lord during this one season of my life. I think I did it for the first six months, maybe or so, 2015, to just go serve at a homeless shelter uh, in downtown Denver. It was this place, actually, it was a house that had been converted into this beautiful community center where folks who were homeless could come in, get some hot coffee and lemonade, and just sit around couches and tables playing chess and just getting to know 
folks who were not homeless, place of community, not so much helpers and people being helped, but just people being together. And I, man, I loved going there, but I felt from the Lord this, like, Andrew, I want you to do this thing. And I know as a pastor, you're always looking to, like, give people life lessons about things. And you're always looking for good illustrations and examples and all of that. But I do not want you to talk about this thing. It's like, God, what, really? I'm trying to encourage people to a life of righteousness and justice and caring for the, you know, caring for the helpless. And are you serious? I just felt it from the Lord. Don't do it. And so every Tuesday from noon until 2 o'clock, I'd go down to Network Coffee House. And I'd sit there and I'd get to know these guys and play chess with them. And I would have these incredible moments where I just sense the Spirit's presence. And God would speak to me and teach me things. And I would drive away and every impulse of the heart was like, I have to talk about this to somebody. And I just felt like the Spirit was like, stop. Button your lips about it. Can you just have an experience with me and like, let me teach you something in this that you wouldn't have learned otherwise. And if you give all of this stuff away, what will become of you? And I just remember sinking down into it and it became like this, um, it became like this joyful secret of the heart that I shared with God alone. And I'd go there on Tuesdays and I'd open my heart to these men and women and it would nourish my spirit and I would never tell anybody about it a little secret between me and God. Now, of course, I'm telling you about it. So I'm losing all my reward in heaven. <laughs> but because I'm doing it unselfishly to help you, I think I might be gaining a reward in heaven in that way. And so I've gamed the system. Don't tell the Lord. Guys, do this. Find ways to have experiences with God that you don't tell anybody about. Live a secret life, but have it be a secret life of righteousness. And I promise, Paul says this to Timothy. He says that there are those people who do this, like they make all this effort to hide their good works, but because righteousness is a public thing, it actually can't be hidden. The stuff that you do secretly, prayer and fasting, and all of your generosity for people that are on the underside of power, you, go, you will go to extravagant lengths to try to hide it, but you actually can't hide it. Because the light of your life, the glory of your life, the radiance of your life will be such that it's impossible to hide. You'll be the light, you're the light of the world, the city set on the hill without you trying. And so vanity misses the point, number one. But I'd say this as well. <clears throat> That it's not just that it misses the point and it's like, hey, there's an experience you could have that you're not having, you know, when you give way to vanity. But I think that vanity is also dangerous for us. That there's a way in which the enemy snares us and upends our lives by vanity. Then the church mothers and fathers down through the centuries have always talked about this. Evagrius Ponticus was a monk in the fourth century who said this. That, and this is worth thinking deeply about. He says that in the whole range of evil thoughts, none is richer in resources than self-esteem. He means vanity. That thing that we do where we become like the star of our own movie and we live that way. He says, none is richer in resources than self-esteem for it's to be found almost everywhere. And like some cunning traitor in a city, it opens the gates to all of the demons. So it greatly debases the intellect, filling it with many words and notions and polluting our prayers and all the other demons when defeated, combined to increase the strength of this evil thought. And through the gateway of vanity, they all gain entry into the soul, thus making a man's last state worse than the first, or as the writer of Proverbs put it more tersely and poetically, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. 
but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. The fear of man will prove to be a snare. When we are on the stage of our lives, trying to get everybody to think that we're amazing, what we really are proving is that we are captive to the opinions of other people. And so we're not doing the thing because it's a right thing to do. We're doing the thing because we think that we'll be safer if more people think that we're righteous or we're virtuous or we're holy or whatever. And so long as the fear of man is still a hook in our soul, I think that our soul is open up to all of the craziness of the enemy. When I think about the great mistakes that I have made in my life and some of the great dumb things that I've done in my life, they've almost always been done because I was trying to impress people. I was trying to belong to the inner circle, the inner ring. I can remember being in eighth grade. I was homeschooled until I was fourth grade. Then I went to school in fifth grade. And it was fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. And I remember just feeling like an outsider. You ever felt like an outsider? Like there's this circle of kids or there's a circle of people over there that they really kind of have it going on. And if I could just belong to that group of people, then my life would be amazing and I will be safe. And out here, you know, with the rabble, all of those people that are biting and clawing, it's all very like kind of scary. But if I could just get inside the inner circle, then I'll be safe. And I remember I got to my eighth grade year and I just remember thinking, I think I've figured out how I can impress all of those people. And so I started just talking stupid and telling body jokes and acting cruel to people that I had, there were just, there's never a reason to act cruel to anybody, but I just became like cruel and stupid and foolish and foul mouthed. And I remember getting to the end of that year and looking back on it and being like, I don't even recognize who I have become anymore. Why did I do that? Because I was trying to impress all these people. Why am I trying to impress all of these people? Because I think that if I impress these people, I will be safer. None of us want to be excluded. None of us want to be on the outside looking in. And so we sacrifice our values and we sacrifice our integrity because we're trying to get inside that inner ring. C.S. Lewis put it so well in his book, The Weight of Glory, where he said that of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is the most skillful at making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. Think about it. The times in your life where you have sacrificed your values and became a worse person than you were before, most of it was because you just thought there was some group out there that you needed to impress. Or if I just do this, I'll become more safe because I belong to these people. Lewis says that the quest for the inner ring will break your heart unless you break it. Can we learn to do things because they are right? And make decisions because they are right. Or are we still captive to what the crowd thinks about us? John 12, towards the end of the ministry of Jesus, the scripture says that there was a group among the Pharisees who believed in Jesus. They saw the miracles, they heard the teachings, and they were convinced. But it says that they would not confess their faith in him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in who? Do we believe that our lives are hidden with Christ in God? Do we believe that being with God is the safest place on planet earth or not? And Jesus has come among us to free us, friends, of the fear of man. He's come to make us the kind of people who are so anchored in him and so anchored in what's right that we could not care less about what the crowd thinks about us. 
We're so emptied into the will of God that we'll do the will of God at whatever it costs us, which, by the way, was what Jesus was like. Jesus practiced the hidden righteousness. Jesus knew how to behave and to perform for the audience only of one. And so when Jesus came to those critical crossroads in his own life, he was able to do the courageous thing. Think about that great moment in the book of Luke where some Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, Scripture says he had set his face towards Jerusalem in obedience to his father. And the Pharisees come to him and they say, you better leave this place, man. Herod wants to kill you. And you know what Jesus says? You go tell that fox. I am driving out demons today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I must reach my goal. And in any case, no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. What is Jesus saying? If Herod disapproves of me, big freaking deal. I'm bringing the fight straight to Herod because I know the will of God and I live my life to do the will of God. I am not beholden to what the crowds think of me or what powerful people think about me. This, by the way, was why Jesus was able to give the hard teachings to the crowds when he needed to give the hard teaching to the crowd. He didn't need the crowd's approval. And therefore he could say the hard thing to them because his identity, his well-being didn't rest in what the crowd thought of him. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. And so Jesus says, when you give alms, do it secretly. When you pray, do it secretly. When you fast, do it secretly. Why? Because we're trying to uproot the fear of man from our hearts. We're doing things for the fear of God. And so vanity misses the point. And vanity is dangerous for us. And number three, vanity, I think, locks us out of the deepest joy of our lives. And do you know what the deepest joy of our lives is? It is to become as God is. Well, it didn't impress a lot of people here, but I'm going to see if I can't make this point to you. The deepest joy of our lives is to become as God is. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The goal of God in our lives is to make us as he is. That's what it means for us to be sons and daughters of the living God. And I've come to understand something about the saints over the years. That the saints are the people who are not just the holiest and they're not just the humblest, but they're also the happiest people on planet earth. And they are holy and they are humble and they are happy, all three and to the same extent, like holiness and humility and happiness are actually three different ways of describing the very same quality. I think about a woman that I've talked about often here over the years. But I think about Ola, this old woman in our, Ola Zagarek, this old woman in our community that I grew up in in central Wisconsin. And Ola was one of the holiest people that I'd ever been around. And she was one of the happiest people that I've ever met in my life. She knew God and she knew God so so deeply, but she also happened to be one of the most humble people I've ever met in my entire life. Ola never got on a platform. Ola never was interested in people knowing about her righteousness. Ola was always like finding a way to hide it, even though it cannot ultimately be hidden. And one day 
Ola was in her prayer time, her devotional time, reading the scriptures, pouring out her heart before the Lord, basking in the presence of God. And she finished up, this is one of my favorite Ola stories, and she finished up her time of prayer and devotion, and then she had errands to run. And so she went out on the town, and she was in a shopco. We don't have shopco anymore. That was the old days. Some of you might remember. Anyway, it was like a Target. And she went to shopco. She's there at shopco. She's doing her thing. She's in the aisle finding her stuff and filling up her cart or whatever. And all of a sudden she starts noticing around her that people are hitting the deck. Like falling, like falling over. And in the old days in the charismatic circles that I grew up in, we called that getting slain in the spirit. Except that happened in worship services for us. Some evangelist or preacher would get up and the spirit would fall. and They'd be praying over people, people falling. Ola is at Shopko. And people are falling over left and right next to her. And she doesn't even realize initially that it's her. And all of a sudden she starts going, wait, they're getting slain in the spirit. They're happening. This is happening because of me. And do you know what Ola does? She ran out of Shopko. She gets in her car and she slams the door shut. And she says to the Lord, don't you ever embarrass me like that ever again. (laughs) Do you know what most of us would do? We'd be Instagramming the crap out of that. Now I'm starting a ministry. It's the ministry of being slain in the spirit in department stores or whatever. Not Ola. She ran from it. She sought hiddenness. But the thing is that she couldn't hide from the glory. (laughs) She's holy and happy and humble all at the same time. And in that way, she was a living image of her father in heaven. Guys, the triune God is holy and infinitely happy and completely humble. Do you know that in the depths of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit never seek out their own attention. But when you read the scriptures, each member of the Godhead is always pointing away from themselves to the other person. What's the Father doing? The Father's going, this is my beloved Son. What's the Son doing? The Son doesn't do anything by himself. He only does what he sees the Father in heaven doing. What's the Spirit doing? The Spirit is pointing to the Father and the Son who are both pointing at the Spirit. They're all like running from the spotlight. Holy, happy, and humble. And when God reveals himself among us in human flesh, he doesn't reveal himself as a king or as a celebrity. What does he reveal himself as? Jesus. Takes a basin and fills it with water. And he gets down. And he washes the feet of the disciples and dries those feet with a towel that's wrapped around his waist. And he says, I've left you an example that you should do as I have done for you. If you know these things, John 13, 17, you'll be blessed. You'll be happy if you do them. And that, by the way, is the secret of the text. Jesus says that your father who sees the things that are done in secret, what will he do? What will he do? He'll reward you. Do you know what the reward is? That you know what it's like to be God (laughs) because you've been brought into God. You share in God's holiness and you share in his happiness as you share in his humility. Can you receive that this morning? 
Would you stand to your feet? As we prepare our hearts for communion, what we're doing is we're asking the Spirit to disentangle our hearts from every motivation and every desire and every fear that keeps us out of the kingdom of God. And so this morning, church, let me invite you to let the Spirit search you. We say, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Spirit, come among us, we pray. We're praying that you would disentangle our hearts from the fear of man. So the writer of Proverbs says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So this morning we're calling upon you and we're asking Jesus, you, who did nothing, nothing to try to impress other people and nothing for the fear of other people. You did everything out of the fear of God, an obedient son of your loving Father in heaven, we pray this morning that your spirit would come in us in a fresh way and that we would make you, that you would make us as you are, <laughs> holy and humble and happy in the world as we're lost in righteousness and lost in holiness and lost in the fear of God. So come, we pray, in our experience of these elements. Jesus, you took the bread and after you had given th the thank thanks, the scripture says that you broke it and you gave it to your disciples saying, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus, we say, make us like you. Come, take this bread and make it more than bread. Make it your body. Take this cup and make it more than cup. Make it a real participation in the blood of Christ that cleanses us, that draws us into the new covenant, that covenant by which we're transformed into you, to be like you in the world. Come, we pray this morning. Come, we pray. Bring us into you, we pray again. In Jesus' name. We invite our servers to come forward to serve communion this morning. We'll have two communion stations up front here, one on my right and one on my left. To come forward for communion, you'll come down the center aisle here, so you'll empty out towards the center. There's a black line down here, half court, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Not really. It really just dividing the room. So come on, form two lines as you come forward. You take the bread and the cup. And take it, uh, you'll partake of it as you take, head back to your seat. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.